He's big and strong, he's sad and mad, and a little bit funny. You are listening to the Crash Program. Crashberry here. Content warning. This episode of Disinfomaniacs deals with the recent mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine. Sensitive listeners might want to skip this one. Please consider supporting our journalism and storytelling that goes places others won't via patreon.com backslash crashberry. Also, please rate and review the Crash Program wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on with the show... Disinfomaniacs is a podcast about the liars, the grifters, and the fascist charlatans intent on destroying democracy. We will be reporting on how their propaganda trickles down to negatively impact local communities. We are here to expose, debunk, and pre-bunk the Disinfomaniacs. Welcome to Disinfomaniacs, episode 10. Crashberry here, along with historian Andy O'Brien. Hey! And welcome back to our internet guy, Nathan Bernard, who's been away first on an undercover assignment and then on a short sabbatical. Hello, Nathan. How's it going? Back from sabbatical. I hope the sabbatical was very enriching for you. Yep, definitely. Back with a new perspective. Okay. We're going to call today's episode Good News bad news and really sad news because in case you haven't heard there was a terrible mass shooting in the main city of lewiston on october 25th when a lone gunman murdered 18 people at two different locations and then he disappeared which resulted in a two-day manhunt and a shutdown of the entire state of maine until the murderer was discovered dead of suicide so we're going to be talking about that story through the disinfomaniac's lens, and Andy will explain his interactions with the first responders responding to this massacre, and Nathan's going to report on how the massacre was portrayed and reported on online, and we're going to talk about the killer's social media, which was almost instantly memory hold, and we're going to talk about conspiracies that have popped up about the shootings. So none of this is going to be a light discussion so, listener, be forewarned if you're super sensitive about mass shootings and gun violence. This might be an episode you're going to want to skip. And before we get to the horrible stuff, we have what we're going to call, uh, I guess for our podcast, good news. We rarely have good news here on Disinfomaniacs. But regular listeners know all about Hammer. That's the neo-Nazi cult leader who's building a tiny house community for Chuds in the town of Springfield, Maine, about an hour from Bangor, up in Penobscot County. Hammer, a.k.a. Chris Polehouse, and his uh, blood tribe cult, they've been causing trouble all over the place in Maine, in Ohio, and in Florida. We've covered it over the course of four episodes, so you can find them in the feed. Hammer, part one, two, and three, and part four, The Curse of Boneface. Anyways, with any luck, this will be the final mention of Hammer for a long time because we have breaking news, a disinfomaniac scoop. Hammer, the neo-Nazi, has sold his 10 acres in Maine and apparently has left the state. 
He's abandoned his plans to create a haven for Nazis in Penobscot County. All right. That is good news. Nice. According to a deed filed on October 19th at the Penobscot County Registry of Deeds, the property was sold to a Massachusetts resident. And we're not going to name that person. I don't think there's any reason to name who bought the real estate. Um, but I found the real estate listing for the uh, property. And the Nazi was asking for $39,900 for 10 acres, which back uh, in March 2022, so a year and a half ago, he bought it for 25000 So he sold it for fourteen grand more than he bought it for. Hmm. Wow. Flip the land. 10 acres. And here's the thing. He actually didn't build a single structure on the whole thing. <laughs> oh, God. So he was all talk. All he had was a couple campers and like one of those pop-up uh, garages and a fire pit. But he did do a little bit of work. I think it was initially when he had help from one of the locals. I believe the guy whose mother owns the Airbnb that was shut down because of his friendship to him. The Loon Lodge, if you recall that story there. We oh, about sure. That. Yeah. She was a big fan. They were pressing cider together. So it was the Airbnb's or the B&B son who was working with him. And they actually did a enough land clearing for a uh you could build a you could build a cabin or a house there. I put it up on the screen. Can you see that? Yep. It's a Zillow listing. Yeah. Kind of a crappy piece of land. Yeah. Scrub yeah. You know? It's like uh the lumber companies have already cut this over. Estimating from the size of those trees, they probably cut it like 20 years ago, right? So there's no lumber. And uh, but he's got a pad. You could put a trailer in there, a camper or a small cabin. And uh, the person that bought us from Massachusetts, uh, so they paid 40 grand. That's pennies for Massachusetts, right? Is uh, 40 grand for 10 acres. But the good news is he's gone. See you later, Hammer. My question is, did this man who bought it know who he was before he bought it? I was very curious about that. Like, was he just like, all right, let's get this Nazi out of here. I'm going to show you guys on the screen the deed. And you can see the name who bought it here. Right here. Can you see that where my cursor is? Yes. Yeah. Okay. That's who bought it. Oh. So that name tells you something. How do we explain that? That's an Asian name, right? Mm. I, I don't think we know for sure, though. I Googled it and have done a background check on this person that bought it. And there's uh -huh. they're definitely not a Nazi. Okay. This was somebody that wanted to buy some land in Maine. And they found it on Zillow and bought it on Zillow. That's how that went. Do you know when he put the land up for sale? So it was for sale for like 10 days. And it was sold 10 days ago. Hmm. That's crazy. Really fast, right? Yeah, that is nuts. And this is the thing. He's in Montana because he had to get this notarized. So on the, if I scroll down, you can see on this, he had this uh, notarized on the 19th of October in Montana. Hmm. And I reached out to that uh, notary in Montana, having her back from her. So we know that 10 days ago, he was in Montana, and this means it's a done deal. So he can't go back and get his camper <laughs> or any of his Nazi flags or anything he's got stashed there. So He's just abandoned. Hmm. So I'm obviously going to keep an eye on him, but he's no longer on the priority list. Who gives a damn? As long as he doesn't come back to Maine, good riddance to bad trash, as we say around here. And I don't know if it was public pressure. You know, he was being ostracized up in Springfield. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Once the locals found out who he was, they just started giving him grief. And uh, the, I think the negative media attention uh, probably had impact. And 
but we don't know what the real reason is, and I don't care. I don't. I'm just glad he's gone. And he did have three or four Mainers as part of his cult, and I have photos of a couple of them. You do. I'm going to monitor them. See, but I'm pretty sure we don't have to worry about Hammer any longer. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We're going to have to break into the show here uh, with a quick update. We recorded this episode Sunday night, October 29th, 2023. And it's now October 31st. And this morning, the Bangor Daily News published a story reporting that Hammer had sold his land. So... I guess you can say they scooped us, even though we've been sitting on the story for five days. Not that it matters, though. All that matters is that the Nazi has left Maine. One other new detail I just discovered, though, was that the Nazis had failed to pay their annual property taxes, so the town of Springfield took a tax lien against the Chuds, which means they had to pay the town the 171 bucks they owed and back taxes before the sale could be completed. And then, around noontime today, Hammer, the Chud cult leader, posted on Telegram, confirming that the land had been sold. However, he wrote his memo from the perspective like he's currently in Maine, like he's on some other property he owns, which I believe is a lie, because he was in Montana a week ago, and he's posted gym photos on Telegram that aren't from Maine. He also claims the other land in Maine is owned in someone else's name, though I find that to be highly unlikely. I mean, who's going to buy land for this Nazi? Though, that being said, we'll continue to monitor the situation, and I've posted the deed and the Zillow listing for the property on my Patreon, Twitter, and Facebook feeds if you want to see the details. Now, back to the show. That was the good news. The bad news is Sean McBrady, who we featured in our Transpanic in Maine episode one, two, and three series. Uh, you know, he's the real, real creepy dude and Chud influencer who stalks educators and trans folk and including minors. Well, here's the bad news. He decided to run for town council in the town of Hamden, where he currently lives. And this is a last minute write in campaign because apparently the Chud figured out that nobody was actually on the ballot for District 1 of Hamden's Town Council. So unless another resident of Hamden like, launches another writing campaign, there's a very good chance that McBee could win, and I predict that would be very bad for Hamden. Terrible. Oof. He's in one-track mind. He doesn't care about anything else. He doesn't care about the budgets or any of the other mundane things about running a council. He's just like, who, who are the who are the LGBTQ people who are city employees, and how do we get rid of them? Sad. Thing is, he's really dumb, and he's easily influenced by dudes like Larry Lockman and Trump. Oof. We'll keep an eye on that. Oh, yeah. All right. So now we're going to go on to the very sad and somber story of last week's rampage that shocked Maine and I would say the nation. Now, Andy, you were actually in Lewiston-Auburn during the rampage, and for folks from away in Maine, the cities of Lewiston and Auburn are known as the Twin Cities. They might as well be one city, even though recent efforts to merge the two municipalities failed. But, Andy, you happen to be in L.A. for your job as communications director for the Maine AFL-CIO Tell us as much as you can about this. Why were you there? And then what did you see in here? We were supposed to have our uh, biennial convention on Thursday and Friday of this past week. 
Uh, so I drove down to Auburn, uh, going through Lewiston around 7.30 p.m. Uh, what I just started seeing police cars just whipping by me on, on the interstate and got to exit 80 for Lewiston. And I started to get uh, texts from my coworkers saying that there had been a mass shooting. And, you know, following my GPS, there's really, I don't know where else to go. <laughs> so I just followed it right through the center of Lewiston and on Lincoln Street, where one of the shootings was. It was just police cars everywhere, uh, just driving along the road slowly on Lisbon Street and stuff, just looking at people walking and, you know, dude kind of looking at me back. I mean, I was kind of terrifying because I didn't know where to go. You know, I was like, oh, shit, I have to drive right through this. And, um, you know, I finally got to the hotel. Uh, we represent a lot of first responders. We represent um, Lewiston firefighters. Uh, and one of the Lewiston firefighters is out in the parking lot. And he just came up to me and told me what was going on. So we just kind of hung out in the in the lobby, a bunch of union workers, you know, shipbuilders and paper makers and all kinds of different workers uh, just sort of softly talking. The police came in and told us to shelter in place. You know, most of us ignored them. We were kind of sitting on the patio just talking and then kind of getting an uneasy feeling and just kind of everybody at once just sort of went inside. You know, there were police everywhere circling around. You went through periods of just sort of thinking that it wasn't, how is this happening here? You know, I mean, we're the quote unquote safest state in the country. We don't have that many murders and certainly not mass murders. You know, the next day we started getting uh, information trickling in about the victims. You know, both of those venues that the shooter targeted, Shemengi's Bar and Grill on Lincoln Street and uh, Just in Time Recreation, you know, are kind of working class institutions in there. And if you look at all the people who were murdered, you know, there a number of them were were union members uh, who our members knew, uh, you know, a Lewiston letter carrier, um, you know, um, one of them was a, a, a shipbuilder with local S6. I ended up talking to somebody who was a, a, a member of IBW. They were all there, like a lot, bunch of their union members were there at Shemengi's before the guy came in. They left to go to a union meeting, and one of the guys, his, his father, was visiting from Florida. He wanted to stay at the bar, so they uh, his son said he'd pick him up later at the bar. And then while they're in their union meeting, at the end, he started hearing sh uh, shots being fired. And so one of the uh, journeymen drove uh, the guy down to the bar because he knew his father was there, and he couldn't get through. And so the business agent from the union drove him to the hospital and and his dad died there oh my there were also uh there was a group uh american deaf cornhole a number of dudes who were uh from the deaf community uh, including a lewiston letter carrier who i mentioned steve vazella they were all just uh throwing bean bags you know when he came in and started shooting and, and murdered like half of them uh, of this team so it, it it hit us really hard. These guys are family men, you know. I mean, Peyton, the shipbuilder, he had he had just got married. He was forty years old, and he had a young daughter. Like it was just sort of like 
but you know finally his life was really like sort of coming together and um he was doing well in his apprenticeship he had just um uh gotten on the education committee at local s6 which is the uh, shipbuilding local at um bath iron works like everybody said he was just like a really sweet guy and he was you know kind of a comic nerd really into superman and sort of nerdy card games you know i assume like magic the gathering and stuff like that he loved to dress up like randy macho man (laughs) he just he he just seemed like a kind of guy i'd probably want to hang out with uh and it just has a picture with his his beautiful daughter and i I, it just destroyed me uh that he his daughter has to grow up without him and uh another guy uh was a is a former union member uh member of msea he was a teacher at baxter school of the death he was also sign language interpreter for janet mills and and dr shaw during the pandemic um and he was shot and killed leaving uh four children um and so it's just you know driving home from all of this i had that sort of feeling like when we were in after 9-11 you know or you think that like shit things are not going to be the same now but it's like this but it, it hits so much closer to home so like i'm i'm driving through lewiston the next day when everybody's sort of supposed to be sheltering in place but i just want to get home to to where i live and it's just like this this like grief but also this sort of fear as well and it's just sort of like smothering you like a blanket and there was nobody on the road and everybody's kind of looking at each other. Everybody knows what's, what's just happened. And you're like, shit, like all the stuff we watch on the news is hit home. Like none of us are safe. And you know, you don't know whether you're supposed to grieve or whether you're supposed to be afraid or on alert because the guy hasn't been caught yet. And so now I guess we're sort of in the grieving phase where the guy has been caught I mean, the guy was found, <laughs> um, killed himself, and we have all these funerals, and it's really, it's really sad. And um, you know, now we're we're setting up GoFundMe's and things for the families who've lost, um, and it, it's just, it's terrible. Um, it's really sad. We've seen these mass shootings elsewhere, and like, come on. Why would this happen here, right? There's, but Lewiston will never be the same now. Lewiston, no, and and you know one thing I was thinking about with Lewiston is like Lewiston's the kind of town that we all like to kick around, you know. Not me, not you. I know you love Lewiston. <laughs> Lewiston's like my favorite because it's the big city for me. So yeah, yeah, I mean, growing up, Lewiston was always the place that you know, kind of people like to have fun with. There's a place like that in every state. And there's always classist overtones. And whenever, you know, you're making fun of a place like that, because it's always a working class town. You know, there's always poverty. Um, but Lewiston has has always been just a working class town. It, it's it's an all-American city. You know, you, you had the Irish who came in the 19th century. And then after that came the Franco-Americans, who are essentially treated like second class citizens you know even when my dad was growing up they called them the dumb french and and now uh there's been a wave of uh somali immigrants refugees as well as asylum seekers from 
um, Central Africa. And so there was a lot of early on when this shooting was happening, there were people like, oh, it's probably, you know, somebody pissed off about Gaza, like some, you know, Islamic fundamentalist that I, you know, I heard oh. a number of people say that. And of course, it wasn't true. It was a crazy white guy uh, with a <laughs> with an assault rifle. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not going to make fun of Lewiston anymore. Good. Uh, I don't think any of us should. I, I think that Lewiston's a great city. And, I, and I've, you know, I'd never been to Lewiston up until 10 years ago. And I was like, I love this city. You know, it's it's like uh, it reminds me of a Maine that I grew up with and that is kind of lost in a lot of parts of Maine, this kind of culture. You know, the go to the bakery and there's baked beads on Saturday night. And there's uh, a lot of these kind of classic old uh, Maine stores and, and bakeries and things like that. And um, you know, my heart goes out to Lewiston. Um, I think, uh, I think all of ours do. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I love the cultural aspect of Lewiston, the multicultural aspect of Lewiston. One of my favorite things is going to the park and watching the kids play hoop. Right. And it's right across the street yeah. from the police station where there's like heavily armed SWAT vehicles and all this stuff. But the park is so beautiful and green and, uh, the there's swimming pool and skateboard park and uh, it's really a fun wonderful place that park and I love it and I love walking around downtown you said it's like an old main town right it's like Portland before Portland got ruined yeah in fact I push anybody looking to move out of Portland I always say Lewiston Lewiston Auburn you, you always hear these people like particularly on facebook like old people is just like oh my god i won't go down there i'm so scared i'm like you're scared of black people yeah yeah definitely <laughs> like just be honest about it it's not a dangerous place you know and there's some great people there so that was a very crazy night couple days uh obviously the three of us were dming back and forth that night when it was unfolding so andy was like telling us stuff i couldn't believe it and i gotta say it was very surreal watching the tragedy develop online in the socials and in the regular media. And Nathan, you were watching Twitter very closely. You do this all the time. Whenever there's a, a new crazy thing happening, you automatically go and start looking um, at Twitter and you see patterns and uh, there was lots of disinfo and rumors, right? And it was very hard to uh, and tough and confusing to get to the reality of the situation because of all the disinfo. Andy, that was such a vivid image of that night and everything like that was we were DMing, but you can never get a picture of just what was happening from someone that had a close experience to it. So, yeah, that was that was an intense story. Jesus. I mean, seeing stuff online and everything just after hearing that, it's like you see conspiracies about how it's a false flag to grab guns or fundraise or anything, but, or, uh, you know, his political affiliations are off, but yeah, it's, it's extremely cynical. Yeah. It's unimaginable. And it, it Musk has made it almost impossible to follow any of these events that happen in a real time crisis situation. I mean, the only verified accounts that you see are, you know, the breaking news reports uh, that are saying, you know, they've caught him already or conspiracy theorists pushing an agenda. So, I mean, the internet was bad before to look at these sort of things, but 
now it's uh, essentially impossible to follow anything on the internet. Um, yeah, just a tragedy on many levels. I met with the firefighters the next day. There was a lot of talk about sort of what what happened in the whole fog of everything and frustration with all the bullshit yeah. that gets disseminated online through these fake, uh, you know, news alert scanner pages and stuff like that that are on Facebook and Twitter, um, you know, right wing reporters that are just constantly tweeting out a stream of bullshit. Um, but meanwhile, they're seeing the most uh, te- just ter- horrible things you can ever imagine, horrifying scenes of carnage. And they're not going to be the same. They're 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 not going to be the same. They, it's like the chief of the firefighters and the president of the firefighters were telling us, like, like they have things that they've seen from their careers 25, 30 years ago that's just like still stuck in their heads and they can't let it go. And they always see it every single day from you know pulling a, a baby out of a burning building or something like that or you know, sit, try pulling somebody out of the Androscoggin River. Um, nobody's ever prepared to come on a massacre like this. Nobody, They're like you, you can't be trained for that. You can't, even if you're in the military, you can't be trained for that. And so it's like now trying to make sure that these guys understand that they need treatment and they need to be. Uh, to see clinicians and therapists to to to, to process all this shit, um, but so so much of this other just makes all of their um, so much of the other sort of static that's going on online and all this other shit just makes their job so much harder. Yeah, it's. I mean, the internet will abstract just the brutal reality of what these the first responders, anyone that has any involvement in this from being multiple layers connected to a family or someone that's on, you know, going into the bowling alley for the first time just to see what they see and to be able the first thing that you think is like, how can we, how can we push a narrative online? How can we flip a, you know, how can we think of how this is a gun thing or, you know, how to fundraise or how can we abstract from just the brutal reality of what's happening? It's just, yeah, it makes their jobs harder, but it's also just such a terrible cynicism. Like it's it's the worst people, just the worst people. Garbage. Yeah, it's just terrible, terrible people. What shocked me, like incredibly, was uh, minutes after the shooting started, Mark Laflamme, who's the uh, re- crime reporter for the Sun Journal, happened to be on vacation when this was happening, and he flew back from vacation and he's he's on the story hard now but in that initial shooting period that's how i think i saw it first on on facebook just before andy got in touch with us and he mark was asking hey what's going on i'm on vacation can anyone fill me in and one of the first within the first dozen comments there was a link that said uh click here for the video from the incident and I'm like, what? So I click on it, right? And it's malware, okay? So within 15 minutes of the shooting, some bot had come in and invaded this thing, and there were several links. 
to i mean it's not flam's fault like he couldn't like keep up on that he's not going to be deleting comments at that point but just shows how quickly people are to or machines are to to leap onto an opportunity like that and it was really sick i'm like uh the curiosity factor and um coupled with misinformation coupled with people trying to grab your i, I don't know what it was i don't know what the malware was for but it was not good um okay so let's talk about those uh, the shooter's social media Nathan, what have you found out about the killer's online presence? Unfortunately, there's been a lot of these situations over the last five to six years where there's a mass shooting or terrible tragedy that happens. And the only thing that I feel like as someone that's just sitting on the Internet, not involved in any of the response teams, not involved in any actual in, you know intelligence gathering, um, I think the only beneficial thing that someone in our position even or my position could do is just try to grab the social media of the killer because after the fact you're going to be able to take away something from that and it's policy on a lot of the social media platforms facebook twitter youtube even that you just remove this stuff pretty much immediately and there's different reasons why you do that there could be hateful manifestos posted on their profiles and you don't want to have people eat more easily disseminate that information um in other cases uh you know they're just following protocol to take down the accounts how do they know when they have something to take down is there a bot is that ai or is there like humans monitoring I couldn't say, you know, because there's always trails left behind. So I think that they they find out just as people like us would find out. And that's how a lot of the information from these social profiles are preserved, because open source intelligence folks or uh, disinformation experts, um, people that study the far right in a lot of cases, they do this practice almost immediately to track down these people. And I'm not the person tracking down the the first to find the account, right? But there's people out there that are professionals at doing this. Um, the folks at Bellingcat, you know, went and they had similar video to when I had gotten ultimately of the guy's social media profile, his entire feed of likes. And my guess for this account was that on Facebook, they had already banned the shooter's a Facebook account, and they had a profile picture on that account that matched the profile picture that was ultimately the Twitter account that got banned. So in this case on Twitter, um, which is the social profile that I saw, um, they probably went and, you know, went to f clarify via the, the profile and what was being shared, the profile picture. Um, so that's all I could guess of how these accounts, you know, in this case was targeted and taken down. They probably did a reverse image search and looked for it. I don't think they use any tactics like they're not using AI unless it's to score all of their network to find something like a unique identifier like that uh, profile page picture. So I think stuff like that is how they target um, and would take down an account. But for Twitter, uh, they're just following what Facebook had done. And on the shooter's Twitter feed, what folks had gathered to look at uh, were a series of likes that were from his profile. And folks scraped the data, which really just resulted in them 
putting the URLs into a text file of the different URLs that uh, the shooter had liked from Twitter. And uh, there was a video of all of his likes that had gotten pretty widely circulated in the end. So I think through those two things, um, those were the two primary sources of information that the killer's uh, Twitter profile and his social media was judged based upon. And within his Twitter likes, it's a lot of, you know, he's liking right-wing politicians. uh, He's liking uh, Tucker Carlson comments, stuff from Donald Trump Jr. um, So kind of right-wing commentators, influencers, there were online far-right influencers uh, such as Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro, uh, an account named Cat Turd, um, an account named End Wokeness, uh, a lot of Elon Musk posts um, he liked, uh, not all with political bents, just some of Musk's posts that were uh, meaningless replies. Um, but there were a lot of posts that showed his politics. He seems to be a right-winger. Um, he seems to be very into guns, um, Second Amendment guy. I'll read two posts that kind of sum up uh, his beliefs. This one is from Donald Trump Jr. Uh, he had liked this post. It was uh, March 27th, 2023. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. post says, given the incredible rise of trans slash non-binary mass shooters in the last few years, by far the largest group committing as a percentage of population, maybe rather than talking about guns, we should be talking about lunatics pushing their gender affirming bullshit onto our kids. Well, that's ironic. Yep. So that is a below a post that liked, uh, which shows an image. It's from Tucker Carlson. He said, this is a Tucker Carlson tweet. And then I'll read one more tweet. Um, Tucker Carlson tweet says the trans movement, it turns out, is the mirror image of Christianity and therefore its natural enemy. People who believe their God can't stand to be reminded that they're not. And it's image of Tucker Carlson under that from his show. Um, the graphic they're showing are two seemingly AR-15 rifles across um, a trans rights flag. And it says guns for some um, insinuating, you know, that. Um, the LGBT community is taking out heinous acts. Um, the last post is from, this is from card that he liked that I'm looking at here is from Dinesh D'Souza, a right-wing conspiracy theorist, um, huge election denier guy. Uh, Dinesh D'Souza's post says ban assault weapons. Well, cars kill more people than guns do, but we blame the drivers. We don't blame larger, fast cars. We understand that cars like guns don't act by themselves. The blame lies with the people who operate these mechanical devices. Common sense 101. So these are some of the posts that the mass shooter had liked on Twitter before his account was taken down. Um, You can get a sense of his politics. But those are only his likes. We don't have access to anything he actually posted, right? There's there's nothing going on with what his actual posts were. No, and it seems he doesn't seem to have posts. Like he's not a guy that's posting stuff. He's liking a lot of things, and you can take it as much as you want to take it for um, thinking about how he thinks. But just what was catching his? It's more I'd look at it and say this is what was catching his attention. Um, I think in this case there are so many factors of what led to this uh you can't i don't think we have a clear line of this caused this you know to happen or anything but these are things that were in his 
these these were things that he was consuming on the internet, and we can just look at it plainly as that. This is the sort of media he was consuming, and take it as you want. This it's it's you know this is all we have to look at right now. Well, it's all this weird projection. I mean, it's like, oh yeah, the the trans shooters are the problem, and it's the it's the people operating the guns, not the guns themselves. I mean, this is very weird that that's what he was liking, and then he turns out to be a mass shooter. I mean. Yeah, I mean, a literal mass shooter is just like, you know what the problem is with mass shooters? They're all trans. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Okay. There's been a lot of debate about, you know, what was there a political motivation? I don't think there was. I think he was just totally nuts. Yeah. But I do think when you hang around this world of uh, far right, terror where they're afraid of everything trans people and black people and immigrants and everything and they always feel like they have to be armed to the teeth to 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 fight back against this uh i i think it does a number on somebody who's already got serious mental issues um and that's kind of their natural reaction to doing that if their life is guns and uh the sort of fear-based media that they constantly consume yeah it can't help anything and we shouldn't be surprised i mean i don't want to keep on bringing up the last episode we had with the crazy guy who paints on the side of his house in western maine but he's saying he's going to kill people that come by to take his house yeah you know sadly like with every mass shooting like the conspiracies popped up like almost instantly right about the lewiston murders Nathan, what did you see in terms of conspiracies? Yeah, I I touched on it a little bit before. Just it's the things you see, unfortunately, uh, on a national media level that happens on every single mass shooting. It's the same things. It's questioning the shooting itself, saying that it was a false flag, that it was a hoax, saying that uh, this guy was clearly a liberal or he was pushed by a liberal agenda. So you have people like Laura Loomer, uh, noted conspiracy theorist, posting about questioning, just questioning that it was interesting timing, that there was going to be a vote uh, about assault weapons ban in Congress. And then this mass shooting happened. You have QAnon conspiracy theorist Ron Watkins saying, posting online, why is there a shooting every time they want to distract us? Do you know what a false flag is? Everyone pushing that it's FBI staged another shooting. It's a false flag. Uh, They're doing this to grab the guns from everybody. Uh, The liberals are using this as a fundraising mechanism. In some cases, uh, blue check accounts are getting wildly amplified on Twitter to say that the mass shooters uh, Twitter account was actually a liberal. Um, There's so just everything that contradicts every fact you can see in front of your face. It's a common tactic, unfortunately, from right-wing conspiracy theorists and the right to do this. It confuses people. It doesn't make anyone's job easier. It's just opportunizing on a tragedy. Lots and lots of QAnon uh, people doing it. And then over on Telegram, I went and checked on our friend Dr. Christian Northrup, (laughs) who had a video of a reporter in Portland at Maine Med reporting on the fact that there were no ambulances there. And Christian Northrup posited that Maine Med's the only place I can deal with gunshots and there's nobody there. Like she's raising like this, oh, is this even real thing? And a, I would say she had 50 responses. 
and 75% of them were saying, yeah, I don't, I don't believe this is actually happening. And then finally a couple people who were actually had family or friends or something would say, no, 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 this is really happening. Right. Like it took like a victim's family to go into Northrop's telegram channel to say, Hey, no, this is real. <laughs> That's mind boggling. You know, I went to my usual hell holes of the internet uh, to, to rumble, bit shoot, odyssey, telegram i found all sorts of whack job stuff here's what i wanted to share with you guys if you look at your screen here i want to go to sean mcbrighty uh, sean first off uh you've been one of the one of the real fighters for the families in maine oh i've got to say who this is this is steve bannon right steve bannon on the war room terrible situation up there we still can't it's still very difficult to make head nor tails of it give us your thoughts before we talk about this outrage in, in women's sports, you know, they're coming after the little boys with the drugs. Women's sports is and coming from a father who Mo was played sports from a very little girl and eventually, you know, was a, one of the leaders of the volleyball team up at West Point. It outrages me. But but where are we with uh, with this tragedy happened in Maine? Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to be back on War Room to speak with the posse. But, yeah, we've really got a horrific situation here with the mass shooting uh, that happened. And, you know, just like your last guest mentioned, I mean, Due to the horrific leadership of uh, our worst governor, Janet Mills, a Democrat-led majority in all facets of our state government. Shut the fuck up. Wow. <laughs> this is before the killer offed himself. Yeah. So Sean McBee, who's now running for town council as a writing candidate in Hamden, yeah. who we've talked about in Transpanic 1, 2, and 3, who you know stalks uh, educators of the year who goes after trans kids and trans folks and is just a real real jerk is on Steve Bannon's podcast talking about the shootings and blames it on Janet Mills and the Democrats who have run Maine for the last twenty to thirty years. He says, and they haven't. We had a certain governor named Colby. Yeah, and the killer is uh, is someone that probably likes Sean McBrady's uh, uh, stuff, right? Likely, yeah. I could not believe because I go to Rumble and I search for Maine and that this pops up. I'm like, what the hell? And then he goes on his, the rant about the uh, trans athlete. I don't even want to go into that. It all has to do with trans athletes. You know, this mass shooter who hated trans people and hated trans athletes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Okay. So I kept on digging around, right? You go to uh, Telegram NSC 131. Oh. Nationalist Social Club. The night of the shooting, they claimed to be at the shooter's house. Wednesday evening, there was a crowd of white supremacists at the shooter's house in Bowdoin, Maine. And they were there Thursday morning, and they claim on, on Telegram that uh, they were there for almost 24 hours before police showed up. And when the Nationalists showed up, they were shocked to discover that there were no police vehicles outside and no law enforcement. So the Nazis were in Maine on patrol hunting for the killer, and they kept on uh, posting videos of it. So NSC-131 is out there prowling, looking for the killer. I mean, this is what we're at right now. Crazy that we have Nazis roaming the street, allegedly hunting for a killer because he killed white people. Oh, my God. What a mess. They were also accusing the guy of being a pedophile, the suspect, which he wasn't. That was more disinformation that was being spread around, including the guy's name, which uh, 
which is is always great in the middle of the heat of this kind of moment where somebody else gets targeted. Uh, for, yeah, we saw for, people say, oh, yeah, it looks like my brother. Also, all the other disinformation that was going, like, there is a second shooter. There is possibly a third shooter. Yeah. Walmart had been shot up. There's all this stuff, right? Uh, he had a jet ski going. And, and, right. And you know what I want to point the finger at? Okay, there's a guy, Main Wire. We're going to talk more about these losers later. Steve Robinson of the Main and Wire. Andy, what's the think tank that runs the Main Wire? How come I can't think of their name? Main Policy Institute. Okay, this is what they're funding. Matt Gagnon of 560 WGAN is, is funding Steve Robinson's hate-filled rag where during this tragedy, he was one of the worst, right? Was he? Oh, yeah. Total disinformation and bullshit being spread around Twitter. He's probably sitting in his house in t- Kittery and just uh, l- listening to a scanner online and just reporting whatever he hears and whatever, and all of his theories and everything like that. And, you know, accusing, obviously accusing Mills and 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 democrats of all kinds of terrible things um it's just it was just total nonsense the man is 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 a toxic influence on the state and all he does is try to divide people uh and and point the blame on whatever is wrong on everybody else in the state all i saw from steve robinson was one, he became a police tracker guy was just live tweeting everything he sees on the police tracker True or not, confirmed or unconfirmed, it was just going out there. And that sort of noise just doesn't help anything. I have a post that he shared, um, I'm looking at right here on Twitter, where he was very active during all of this. Steve Robinson reposted, breaking, multiple FBI agents are currently at a resident's home in Bowdoin, Maine, announcing FBI opened the door, a possible manhunt for might be nearing its end. There are reports of explosions emanating from the house. That that shit just doesn't help anything. It just creates noise and, you know, a mess for everybody um, that's actually responding to this. So it was all conjecture and trying to ID this person live on Twitter as you're tweeting, live tweeting the identification process, retweeting blue check accounts that are just spamming the trending feed for everyone else from around the country trying to follow this. All of this is being funded by Leonard Leo, the the Federalist Society clown who uh, basically has has shaped the Supreme Court uh, with these right wing nut jobs uh, who lives in, you know, around Bar Harbor. And and he's funding this outlet that's just spreading uh, just this massive stream of disinformation and turning people against each other. I mean, as he's as he's tweeting this constant stream of bullshit, he's constructing a narrative uh, where who's going to be to blame? Like, how are we going to deflect this from the gun issue to Democrats and Janet Mills? And he's sort of you can sort of see the process, the sausage making on Twitter and how he's going to do that. Right. You see it live. Yeah, they're just spitballing it, basically. What can we do after the fact that's going to make this not just make it seem like a mess so that guns weren't the problem, that there is nothing to do with it? And it's just, yeah, it's an extreme cynicism. And we don't need new laws. No new laws. Yep, exactly. Well, we shouldn't be surprised that uh, Steve Robinson's doing it because he's a, just a troll, right? He's a Bowdoin educated troll who dis, is a disinfomaniac of the um, umpteenth degree. But I got to say from, you know, I've been a journalist in Maine now for 30 years, fellas, 30 years. 
I always have to have two sources for everything I do. And yet, uh, in the heat of the moment, I'm seeing Press Herald stories quoting uh, a city councilor who told CNN, you know, like there is not what we have as traditional journalism, where you take a second and try to absorb it as opposed to trying to uh, just fill this with a hot take almost. And all through this, we saw, oh, well, the Walmart's getting sh- shot up or whatever. There's all this other stuff. And because we're a 24-hour news cycle, uh, you know, they just feel compelled to just keep on reporting when they really didn't know anything. And if we go back and look at the timelines, what they were saying, there's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to be deleted, right? Because it's not accurate. Right. I thought that the I thought that the local journalists did the best that they could because at the same time, if they're not, you know, and I know that they tweeted some things that were turned out to be not true in the end, but there's all this other disinformation that's being tweeted out that people are following. And it's really hard to, you know, in the heat of the moment uh, to decipher what's, what's true and what's not. They were, I know for the most part dealing with sources in law enforcement um, and, and and trying to do their best there, whereas CNN was was scooping them on stuff that was based on some unnamed sources. My critique is not necessarily of the local media, but I think it's more about the media has changed so much that this is appropriate behavior. Right. And that they have to report so quickly and yeah there was some on the ground boots coverage there but the daily v scooped a bunch of stuff and they're in like washington and new york and there's all this kind of like pressure to produce content when we really don't know anything and it just further i think increases that fear quotient out there yeah like the more we say the guy's still out there the guy's still out there the guy's still out there the scarier it is when in reality, the dude was really never out there. He he probably was hiding out at the recycling center, and that's where he offed himself. You know, so we we were in a panic. And I would say, as an old timer who was a reporter before the internet, it's like we didn't have that kind. Of, we had other problems, but we didn't have that kind of panic, right? Because we had to wait. And I am, you know, very methodical about the way I would do journalism. And if I'm covering a true crime thing, like I do sometimes. I'm going after the facts, right? Because I only have one chance to tell the story. But with the modern media, it just kept on going, right? The story, the narrative changes. And I'm not saying it's anybody's fault. I just think it's part of what sucks about modernity. Right. 24-7, hot take, hot take, hot take. Definitely. I was managing editor for a newspaper and reporter. And I don't know how daily reporters did it because I had a whole week to write my articles about what was going on in Augusta, whereas they were like live tweeting it and writing an article and trying to do it in the middle of the night before, you know, the total deadline happens. And so I, I, I don't know how they were able to report accurately when you don't have the time to compress and and read everything and talk to sources and stuff. It takes a long time to get a full picture of what's happening. Oh, for sure. I, the only comparison I have from my own experience was I was a daily news radio network reporter covering Maine when Stephen King was uh, hit uh, by the van. 
Right. I just thought it was like a local story. I get back uh, home after filing a story, and, and like my editors who were in Arizona were like, "You got to get on this." So I spent like a week and a half in Lewiston at Central Maine Medical Center, like reporting live from <laughs> the hospital constantly, constantly. I I I wrote I think over thirty stories about Stephen King. I was like doing stories like. It's not Cujo, but a dog's being blamed for the accident because a dog was in the van. That it's like, oh god! I was on the radio all the time, talking about twenty four seven, talking about Stephen King, and I it was, it was <laughs> the only time that ever happened. That was what they paid me for was to react to things in Northern New England. So once <laughs> in a year, uh, it was crazy. But there was a scrum of reporters at Central Maine Medical Center. You know, it was probably as many microphones as had ever been in Maine up until this point. Because when you look at the number of microphones at these press conferences uh, with the police this week, it was it was international. Oh, yeah. This is going to stick with us forever, right? And we're just on the outside of it. Think of everybody that's impacted. So it's a, such a huge thing. But, you know, there's going to be another mass shooting pretty soon. And then everyone's going to forget about the Lewiston one. Right. Except for us. We're going to remember, and people in Maine are going to remember, and obviously the victims and the families and the loved ones and the friends, we're stuck now. We have this forever. But the rest of that awareness is just going to dissipate into the vapors with the next big thing, whatever it is. And I, I, I want to bring it to, uh, for instance, my congressman. You guys are District 1. I'm District 2. I, uh, congressman Golden, who made a uh, pretty amazing statement. At a time like this, a leader is forced to grapple with things that are far greater than his or herself. Humility is called for as accountability is sought by the victims of a tragedy such as this one. Out of fear of this dangerous world that we live in and my determination to protect my own daughter and wife in our home and in our community, because of a false confidence that our community was above this and that we could be in full control among many other misjudgments, I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war like the assault rifle we used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure, which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles like the one used by the sick perpetrator of this mass killing in my hometown of Lewiston, Maine. For the good of my community, I will work with any colleague to get this done in the time that I have left in Congress. To the people of Lewiston, my constituents throughout the 2nd District, to the families who lost loved ones. And to those who have been harmed, I ask for forgiveness and support as I seek to put an end to these terrible shootings. In the days to come, I will give everything I have to support this community's recovery. What do you fellas think about that? I was surprised because I thought he was pretty dug in on that. But at the same time, people like Golden and Mills are able to constantly justify that but their position on gun rights legislation by saying, well, we're the safest state in the country. Uh, and that may be true, but we just uh, had as many more uh, gun deaths in Lewiston on Thursday night than we did in 2021 total in the whole state. Well, this is our second mass shooting of the year. We had the other uh, Bowdoin murder. Oh, yeah. Right? So this is our second mass shooting. Yeah, the guy on the highway. That was wild. Who had just been released from prison four days before 
killed his parents and killed the family friends that had taken them in. And just, you know, another horrible thing. We almost forget about that. Yeah. Meanwhile, the main GOP, they're constantly raffling off guns. Yeah. The main GOP doesn't know what's going on, obviously, because they're using guns as a fundraiser. So they're state representative from Auburn. So the neighborhood from where the mass shooting is, Laurel Libby, has auctioned off two guns this year. <laughs> One was just to get on her mailing list. If you signed up for her mailing list, you're entered into a gun thing. And then through the uh, Republican Party, there's been multiple ones. How are they going to justify this continued gun fetish thing in this post-Lewiston massacre era? Well, they will continue to because uh, Eric Brakey, the senator for uh, Auburn and, and, and the towns around it next to Lewiston, has already said, well, uh, that uh, just-in-time bullying... Um, the recreation center where the guy opened up and started shooting. Well, that's a gun-free zone. You know, the bar is a gun-free zone. If everybody had guns, then they could have fired back. And he's like, now he's already saying, well, I talked to people who were there, and they're saying, God, I wish I had my gun. I would have shot back. And it's just like a guy walks in and just starts hosing people down with a fucking automatic weapon. And you think that you're just going to tip over a, a table and start firing back? No, people were looking at, oh, there's a kid's bowling league out here. I'm going to try to get them out the side, you know, or they're just fleeing for their lives. They're not thinking about, you know, being Bruce Willis here, uh, but they live in a fantasy. Eric Brakey is number one problem in Maine when it comes to guns, because remember, constitutional carries because of him. Yeah. But also... This whole thing about saying, well, they had guns. Well, you know what it means to be a gun-free zone? I looked up the law for establishments that sell alcohol because guns are allowed if the bar allows them. If a bar says no guns, that means no guns. So he's advocating that these gun-free zones, suddenly people just start packing heat. And if you blow a .08 or higher in the breathalyzer and you have a gun on, then it's a felony. So are we going to be enforcing that, right? All these chuds going to bars, drinking, packing heat, and using this as an example. So the Brakey's even having this conversation. You know, maybe Brakey should, like, log off the internet for a while. <laughs> Stop tweeting and get to his new job, because I don't know if you fellows know this or not. He's going to be a substitute teacher in Auburn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Eric Brakey, who uh is obviously not in touch with reality is going to be teaching kids in auburn well the guy hates public education i mean i've dug up tons of tweets where he's just talking about abolish the department of education privatize schools vouchers you know um so i don't know maybe it'll be good for him but uh no 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 there's a nefarious reason for it he's going to use this in some kind of like uh james o'keefe uh project veritas way, way where he like reveals some big truths about the auburn schools or right. or he's going to use it because isn't he running against he's running for uh second uh district congress right no, in the primary no, for the republicans he, he's run for senate he's run for congress i think he's figured out that the only you don't think he's win. running for, oh i i believe he's going to run against golden yeah I, he hasn't yet he hasn't announced it yet so even the page like trashed him he's just like no we we, we need a better candidate than this guy <laughs> <laughs> what a mess Okay, Andy, well, you're a former state lawmaker and you understand how Augusta, I guess, works or doesn't work. Yeah. 
Is there anything legislatively uh, that could be done? I don't know to prevent future mass shootings. I, I uh, this is way over my pay grade. I have no idea. The debate right now is over Maine's yellow flag law, which was a watered down version of a red flag law. And and, and what a red flag uh, law is essentially is that the family members of uh, a guy who's acting erratically and crazy uh, can petition a court to have his gun taken away. And people like uh, Representative David Boyer and uh, Senator Brakey are saying that Maine's uh, yellow flag law failed because this guy, this shooter, was talking about hearing voices in his head uh, and shooting up the National Guard base uh, where he was. And, uh, you know, so they're saying that, like, somebody should have stepped in and taken away his guns right there. Therefore, we don't need any new laws. We just do need to enforce the laws that we have on the books. There's a problem with that. Um, so according to the reports that I've read, um, this shooter's unit commander sent him to receive psychiatric treatment last summer uh, after they became concerned about threats he made to the base and his claims that he was hearing voices. Uh, so he spent about two weeks undergoing inpatient psychiatric treatment and was released. Uh, but it's not clear if any other action was taken. Uh, a defense uh, department official said that the guy's unit requested that law enforcement be contacted in July after he became uh, began uh, behaving erratically. And the New York State Police responded and took him to Keller Army Community Hospital. So that's where he was taken in for mental health treatment. Uh, his The shooter's family uh, told NBC News that he had been hearing voices for months. His mind was twisting around, all this other stuff. Maine has this yellow flag law, uh, which, unlike the red flag laws that are in effect in about 20 states, uh, Maine's yellow flag law does not allow family members to directly petition a judge uh, to order someone to temporarily give up their guns and prohibit them from acquiring new firearms. Only police can issue this request in Maine. Uh, and this law was essentially written by the gun lobby as a compromise because we didn't have enough uh, votes to pass a red flag law. Um uh, so under Maine's law, if a person is concerned that a family member may be a threat to the himself or others, uh, they must first report it to law enforcement, which would then take the family member into protective custody. And then uh, we, we go a step further and say under this law uh, that there must be a medical assessment of this person done before the petition goes to a judge. So there's like tons of red tape in between uh, before somebody can get their guns taken away because the gun rights people were like, well, we need due process. We need due process. So my reading of this and a lot of other people who are reading this said it, it doesn't appear that Maine's yellow flag law would have disarmed it. So the main law is really narrow and it's difficult to administer. And I just think it's it's in it's ineffective. Um, a lot of the focus when the law was passed in 2022 was it wasn't meant to stop mass shooters. It was meant to 
stop people from committing suicide with guns. Because at that point, the gun lobby was saying, well, Maine doesn't have a lot of mass shootings. It's domestic violence. It's suicides. And so the law was crafted in response to that. Um, it's been used a number of times to to stop people like sui- a suicidal man in, 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 in Bangor ended up in a standoff with police. Um, but, you know, the yellow flag law doesn't require a person to receive treatment for the issues that led them to losing their guns. And it shows that even when guns are taken away, they can be still be borrowed or stolen from friends or relatives. I mean, there's so many guns around. That I I think is this this piecemeal approach just it it doesn't work. We're gonna end up just going down a rabbit hole and fighting over all this stuff, and it's not actually gonna get to the root of the problem. The root of the problem is guns are extremely accessible, and mentally unstable people can easily get them, even if they get their guns taken away. They can get it from a family member or someone else. Well, and that brings us back to uh, part three of. Transpanic in Maine, uh, the guy in Western Maine who paints uh, messages and threats on the side of his house. He's heavily armed. I'm sick of these motherfuckers killing everybody they want and these fucking scumbag fucking Democrats allowing them to do whatever they want. Come to my house and try that shit. I'll tell you what. Everybody knows in this whole fucking everybody, the whole fucking town, come to my house, I'll fucking kill you. That's all there is to it. You can put that in the article. So after the shooting, uh, I guess it was on Thursday, I asked a friend to go by and take a picture of that guy's house and send it to me to see if he did anything. So I'm going to read what the um, the star of Transpanic Part 3 uh, has written in front of his house right now. And uh, I'm going to bleep the murderer's name. Okay, so... Here's what the sign says. Poor never got the help needed. Another casualty of the man dress brigade. Flatten Gaza now. Fuck Palestinian trash. (laughs) Wow. Great. Yeah. So that's what's in front of our guy's house right now. I would agree with him about one thing, that the killer never got the help he needed. That's for sure. I would like to see the dialogue with the gun uh, fetishists take on a, a kind of a national health care plan. If they think it's about mental health, not guns, then maybe they should join us in uh, getting universal coverage so that people that have mental health issues can get help earlier rather than never. Obviously, mental health is an issue in Maine. Crazy guys with guns is a bad combination. Yeah. Nathan, back to the internet. Any thoughts on how we can fix any of this? Like, is there a way to stop the disinformation? I don't think so. I think that's just kind of what media is right now. I think on a local level, you have someone like Big Steve and he's pushing out police scanner stuff. He's pushing out the raw news alert reports that say it's FBI open up and just throwing them a lot of noise out there uh, and it all benefits them, right? It's Steve is sharing uh, something nationally. Laura Loomer gets to comment on a local story. They all just feed each other. I think that's the system now, unfortunately. I don't think that anything much is going to change in the near future. I think the incentives are laid out online pretty clearly, and they've been playing out for quite some time. Uh, So 
I don't think so. I don't I don't know what the solution is. I don't think anyone knows what the solution is. And there's clearly repercussions to all of this. This sort of online rhetoric and the conspiratorial talk, living in fear um, from that side of the right wing, I think doesn't help anything, like we were saying. So that's that is that is the environment we're living in right now. I don't think it's going to change. Well, is there a monetization aspect of it? Were those blue checks doing those uh, disinfo things to get clicks so that Twitter then pays them? Is that part of the game there? I'm sure it's part of it. I don't, I mean, it's hard to think about the type of person that runs, for instance, just this account, raw alerts that Steve Robinson is retweeting. I don't know. You get a rush from getting that much viewership. They get paid off of the other blue check accounts on Twitter that look at their stuff I don't think Musk is doing massive payouts. There was some guy that just tweeted the other day. He had 16 million impressions and made $17. So okay. <laughs> you're you're exchanging dollars and cents for massive reach. I can't tell you what their incentive is. It's uh, chaos in a lot of cases. And um, someone like Steve is getting paid to be an active participant in that. Um, I think other people have maybe a more cynical view even than a guy like Big Steve. So I think it's a... We live in a very cynical world that stuff like this can happen. It'll get thrown under the rug and, you know, something else equally bad will happen in the near future. Um, And these guys will be right there. Raw news alerts posting again about it. It's nothing good. Andy, obviously, you're very close to the story. What are your final thoughts on the impact of the massacre in Lewiston? I think it'll be with the people of Lewiston and us Mainers for a very long time. I think it's really disrupted the view we have of our own state as this sort of peaceful, uh, safe state. You know, we all laugh at the little newspaper headlines of a moose on the loose or whatever. You know, it's it's sort of laid back and everything was just thrown on its head with this massacre. It's totally senseless. You know, the guy didn't have an agenda other than that he was hearing voices and he just decided to kill all these people just enjoying a night out. And um, we have to realize that we're not divorced from the rest of the U.S., uh, that this is a problem everywhere and we can make a decision. We either decide that we just want to support the rights of people to own whatever they want and tolerate a certain level of insecurity with the potential of of somebody shooting up a public place at any time in any place, or we decide that we want to do something about it. All right, welcome back, folks. One of our regular callers, Corn Pop from Maine, is actually from Lewiston, where this latest mass shooting took place and actually had friends affected by it. Uh, Thanks for holding over, Corn Pop. Corn Pop, I saw your tweet on Twitter. In fact, I uh, I liked it, but I'll go ahead and uh, retweet it here. You say that uh, you actually knew people who were at the bowling alley uh, when the shooting took place. Is that right? What bothers me the most about this situation is there is like Instead of talking about the real situation, the real problem, which is mental health, there's so many red flags with this shooting that doesn't make sense. And instead, they're politicizing this and they're blaming the gun when really the gun 
in a responsible hand could have stopped this situation, could have stopped 22 people being murdered and 50 to 60 people being injured. Instead, they're trying to use what could have solved this situation as the problem. For today